We come this evening to the worship of God in preaching, and we'll turn to read God's word together in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 26. And if you're looking in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 226. Let's pray together. Our God, once again, we come humbly seeking your face and longing for that vision of Christ that will comfort us, that will conform us to his image. We plead with you to send your spirit this evening. Here we are on a Sunday evening, a quieter worship service, not quite as many of us. Maybe our hearts a little tired at the end of the day, already beginning to think of what will happen tomorrow. And we pray that you would so occupy our vision with yourself that all those things that would otherwise distract us would be put aside and, as it were, be consumed by the blazing glory and beauty of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come to us, Lord Jesus. Come and meet with your people, we pray, and give us all that we need that we may be your blessed worshipers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. Page 226 in the Pew Bibles. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This is God's holy, infallible, precious word. It's been some time since I've been with you, and we have together considered this book, Samuel, First and Second Samuel. 
So we'll do just a little bit of review and, and put things into the into the place that I think may be helpful for us to understand this text. Here we have in Samuel, and I think it, you could say it's a bit of a thematic sort of thing, God revealing his salvation to a cursed woman. Remember how the, the story begins. We start with Hannah, abused by her, quote-unquote, co-wife, unable to have children, apparently cursed. This is, barrenness is a sort of curse under God's covenant, Here she is, weeping, lamenting, pleading with God for a son, mistakenly believed to be drunk by Eli at the temple. But then when he finds out her sincerity, he blesses her, and Hannah amazingly gives birth. And the boy that is born is her son Samuel. Now, behind all of that, we need to think of the Bible as a whole. And so when you hear of a barren woman giving birth to a blessed child, you should think a little bit further back in the story. Adam and Eve sin. God's curse falls upon the creation. And the first person to whom God speaks, when he discovers, so to speak, Adam and Eve, searching them to find them in love, he speaks first to the serpent. The message comes to the serpent what is sometimes called the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, in which God declares that a son will be born and he will crush the head of the serpent. Now, what is all of that about? And what indeed is this about, this very clear, sort of typical, a, a pattern sort of, if you like, in history? What is this pattern about? Well, nothing else than worship. Satan refuses to give that glory and adoration to God that he deserves. He brings our first parents into sin and condemnation. And so the the gospel first comes to him. It has to first be, as it were, proclaimed in the heavenly places. There is going to be through the ages a battle over worship. And Hannah's experience in the book of First and Second Samuel is a sort of, if you like, a paradigm or a pattern for the whole book for what's going to happen in God's answer to her request. All of Samuel is really going to be the outworking of that salvation. Notice what it says in verse two, verse six rather of chapter two, the Lord, she sings, kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. A reversal of fortunes, as it were, not just for Adam and Eve and all their race in Christ, but a reversal of things particularly in the life of Israel at this moment. Bear that in mind. We're going to come, and you'll see that worked out. Uh, Chapter 2 again, verses 9 and 10. He, that is the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And a significant moment in this book, and really in the whole Bible, at the conclusion of verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. His king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. His king. How will this worship war be waged? Well, this is the first clue. It will be by a sovereign, by a monarch. This is the story of a coming king who will rule with such glory that he will destroy all wickedness and bring about the true worship of God. We recall that 
Samuel follows immediately upon the heels of the events in Judges. And the concluding line in Judges, a sort of thematic statement for all of Judges, there in chapter 21, verse 25, last book, last verse, rather, of the last chapter of that book. A summary statement. In those days, there was no king. Why are things so terrible in Israel? Why is God's worship abandoned? Why is there idolatry and murder and all kinds of evil? And judges have to be raised up. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's the point of judges? We desperately need a king. We need someone to come and crush and rule over the serpent that there may be restored again the true worship of God. And this is something that God anticipates his people needing, not only in the Messiah to come, but in those kings that will prefigure him. Deuteronomy 17 speaks of them coming into the land the Lord your God is giving to you, possessing it, and then saying, I will set a king over me. And the Lord says, you may indeed... You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord, your God, will choose. We're going to hear about the selection process as we go through Samuel. But there needs to be a king. He's the one who can restore right worship. He's the one who can bring the creation to the proper order and destroy the effects of the curse as long as he's God's king that God chooses. And the Lord does choose. And we sang of that in Psalm 2. He sets his king on Zion, his holy hill. And Hannah, absorbing all of those promises given to Eve and to Adam, absorbing what is said in her song, this helpless, barren woman is greatly strong in her faith, and she rests. This is the remarkable thing about Hannah. She rests in the confidence that the Lord is going to do what he said. He's going to raise up his king. He is going to bless and support and exalt the horns of his anointed. And so we read again, Still in background here from 1 Samuel 1, how here she is praying in the temple. Then we get to verse 16. She's mistaken by Eli as a drunkard. She says, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. All along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's easy to just miss what is said there. The promise that Eli, wicked though he is, gives to her by the word of the Lord, she embraces and she goes home happy. Now, I don't know about you, but if, I received that kind of a word. I'd probably go home and be pretty anxious until it happened. But we find her not weeping. We find her eating. Here she is trusting remarkable rest and comfort. And from that great faith will come a great man of faith who's going to bring Israel into the obedience and faithful worship of God. The man Samuel, whose name means the Lord has heard, and he does hear and gives better than Samuel and better than the coming King David He gives us the story, the truth, the reality, the person of Jesus. Two parts to what we'll consider then as we come now more directly to our text. First, that the Lord curses corrupt worship and corrupt worshipers. We need to consider the worship of God in these days. In particular, we read of a tabernacle. It's also called a temple in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. 
a tent where God meets with his people. It's set up in a place called Shiloh. And in chapter 3, we read some of the furniture that's in there, much as you would have found in Exodus. The same things are there. And so you can see that those types and shadows, as Hebrews calls it, of heavenly things are still in operation. The worship of God is greatly diminished, but it's still as if in Israel there's a light. A window into the heavenly things is opened in these earthly copies, and you can see what is really happening in heaven. The angels adoring God, God's people meeting with him, God blessing them with his grace as they render him the worship that he deserves and requires. And how much better is it in the New Testament? The fullness of grace and truth has come to us. The Spirit of God by whom we enter into no in greater measure the reality in Jesus. We have come to know the name of this King. And all of that solemn and bloody worship of the Old Testament still points us to Jesus. When you read Exodus, when you read Leviticus, you are meant to think about the sacrifice that will come, the priest that will come, the King who will offer himself and crush the head of the serpent so that there can be, again, true worship. He will pass through the heavens like a tabernacle and sit enthroned upon the mercy seat. That's the tabernacle and what its typological significance is. But there's also a priesthood. And we find the priests ministering there in the scriptures. We're told they shouldn't be just anyone, but it's particularly given to the family of Aaron. Now, Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar. Those first two are consumed in fire when they offer worship that God did not prescribe. And so the priesthood passes to Eliezer, the third son. We read this in two places. One, for instance, Numbers 20, verse 28. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down the mountain, and we read again in Deuteronomy 10, verse 6. His son Eliezer ministered as priest in his place. Now a priest has come following the line of Aaron, whom God accepts. Now, this is a strange thing, because when we read about Eli, the priest, he descends from Aaron, all right, but he doesn't come from Eliezer. He comes from the fourth son, Ithamar. And we might wonder, what is going on? How did we get from Eliezer and his line to Ithamar? Well, there is a continuous sort of sliding away from God's commands, and from God's worship that's taking place throughout this entire period. And not until David's time is the priesthood, does it begin to be restored really to the line of Eliezer, when David approves the service of Zadok the priest to serve as the high priest in the Lord's house. And in time, what you find is that the line of Ithamar begins to fade. And Zadok, the true priest, the rightful priest, begins to rule in his capacity. We read also, though, about Eli in 1 Samuel 4.18 that he's not just a priest. In a way, he symbolizes the coming king himself because he judges Israel. Samuel's really the last of the judges, we might say, but here is Eli judging Israel for 40 years. Now, the connection to the book of Judges. So you can picture now, as we think about who is Eli, what's the worship that's going on? Here's this judge, this ruler of Israel. You could say one of the biggest, most important people in all of Israel, a priest, a judge. You get a picture of what's really going on and why God so despises the condition of his people when their worship is corrupted. 
Think of the environment of worship in Samuel's day. We read in verse 12 of the worthless sons of Eli. Evil. Not just, not just lazy layabouts. These are bad guys. Hannah praying in the temple, chapter 1, verse 16, tells Eli, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, and he acknowledges her worth, but Eli's own sons, the guys who are supposed to be leading Israel in worship, exalting the majesty of God, bringing God's people near to him in grace, are worthless. And part of the reason for that is because of what it says in the latter part of verse 12, they did not know the Lord. Now, this is also said about Samuel in his youth, First Samuel 3, 7. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, with Samuel, he did not know the Lord by the experience of God speaking to him. But the sons of Eli didn't know the Lord in another way. Samuel was worshiping. Samuel was actively seeking practically to follow the living God. But the sons of Eli, oh, no, maybe they aren't prophets like Samuel, and they hear the word of the Lord, or we're told that the word is rare in those days, but they don't even obey it. They don't, in that sense, in the practical way, know the Lord. It's the same thing that Romans 1 speaks of with regard to pagans and unbelievers, and really the heart of man as it degrades in spiritual rebellion. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The sons of Eli did not acknowledge the Lord, and God has given them up, as we'll see, to a debased mind. They didn't acknowledge him in all of their ways. What a terrible, terrible thing it is when those who minister to the Lord do not know him. What a terrible thing it is for worshipers, any worshipers, to be so close to the heavenly realities pressed up against them in the very presence of God to be near to the things of God, but to be far from God. That's a terrifying statement. They did not know the Lord. May that not be true of us. Priests and pastors, of course, of all people, ought to have the best character and conduct of any of God's people. And so often it seems at least from headlines, that maybe pastors are really some of the worst. And so Matthew Henry notes that these are the sort of men of which Paul writes in Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They don't know the Lord And this then is what they do. They corrupt his worship. Again, it's not like they're the first and they are not the ones who are the source of this. Worship and the obedience that God deserves has been gradually or maybe even fairly rapidly degenerating in Israel for many years. But notice where it really kind of centers. It centers on worship. It centers on the sanctuary and the temple of God. If you wonder, why are Christians sometimes so worldly and sinful? Look at their worship. If you wonder why you struggle so much with sin and falling into it, look at your worship. 
Well, we see the terrible immorality and wickedness at the time of the judges really manifested in the lives of Eli's sons. Notice how they pervert the worship of God. First and significantly, this is really the main theme of what they do. They take what belongs to God and take it for their own use. Two ways. First, in the sacrificial meat. Of course, you can just imagine the privileges that would be yours if you're a priest. Here are people coming and offering animals to God on a regular basis. And the priests were permitted and even given specific portions of the animal to eat. Now, we live in the United States and we live in Wisconsin where we get... We get plenty of meat, most of us, and we enjoy the occasional hamburger. That's not how it is and has been for the majority of people throughout the world today or in past ages. It just isn't. You don't eat meat that consistently, but if you're a priest, you get to do that. It's a special privilege. But Eli's sons come and select the cuts of meat that they want and sometimes apparently are even taking the parts that belong to God himself. And then we find them, moreover, intimidating, threatening the worshipers, to get the things that they wanted. You can just imagine. Some of that filet tonight, a little bit of a you know T-bone. That's no, 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 no. No quarreling about this. You must give it. And maybe the worshipers are speaking back, it even seems like. But you need to let God get his part. And part of what he was to get was the fat. That's to be burned first. And there, there there's a sense of anger and frustration with the worship of God. And here these men who ought to be the premier worshipers of God are being rebuked by God's people. What a terrible thing. And sometimes what a right thing. They take more than they should. They take their cut before the Lord gets his. They take what belongs to him. And they, in this way, abuse and threaten God's people, disrupt his worship. And we read in particular, verse 17, what a statement it is. They treat the worship of God, his offerings, with contempt utter disregard for his offerings. Now think about that for a moment. If I disrespect and just sort of take your property to myself, what am I saying I think about you? I have no regard for you. I don't really care about you if I take your stuff and use it for myself. And maybe they were telling themselves things like, well, why shouldn't I? God isn't needing it anyway. But that misses the point, doesn't it? That God insists on being the absolute Lord of all things, and most especially in his worship. Yes, God is long-suffering, but he will not share his glory with any other. In the past decades here in the United States and maybe other Western countries, we've heard of that sort of of tug-of-war over worship styles, the worship wars. But we ought to be very clear about the worship wars, the real worship war, is that we cannot worship God in any way that we please. We may not take the things of God for our use and our comfort and really organize things according to our preferences. It is not ours to do. It is God's alone. He is to be worshipped, as Hebrews 12 says, in reverence and awe. He is a consuming fire himself. To take out of the fire that sacrifice that belongs to God and abuse and manipulate it for myself is to disrespect the God of holiness and to disregard Christ's own offering for me. God is a great king. And you can be sure he will not suffer such fools gladly. And so it says that their sin was very great in the sight of the Lord. And as our larger catechism puts it, some sins are more heinous than others. 
and to abuse the worship of God, and particularly for those who ought to be his ministers to do so and who have authority to lead worship, how particularly dreadful. So pray for your pastors. (laughs) Pray for your elders. Worship is not something we make treat lightly, and it flows into every other area of our life. We need to recognize the significance of what we're doing, that when we come into worship, we are no longer entering into the types and shadows. We are coming to the heavenly places themselves, into the presence of God, as it says again in Hebrews chapter 12, the angelic host, the spirits of those who are righteous men perfected in glory, we are together with them even as we are here tonight. There is no better place to see God openly with his people than in worship. And so you can appreciate how God is so very jealous for that which rightly belongs to him. There's a second way in which they take for themselves. They take for themselves the women who come to the sanctuary, the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they commit adultery with him. What an evil thing. And of course, we've heard of such things in our own day. Evil men who take advantage of women in various kinds of ways and abuse and really, in a way, make God's worship more like a pagan ritual and a minister or an elder to be more like a sort of witch doctor by whom another person receives favor if only they will share in sexual union, like the Jezebel of Revelation. And so these men defile the worshipers. They defile the worship of God. They abuse these women whom they ought to have protected. They debase themselves. They take what belongs to God. They treat it with disrespect. They despise God himself. Does this sound a little bit like some of the headlines? Ministers that we read about, scandals erupting in various denominations, and we are not immune, I assure you. Or moreover, what about those pastors who take from their poor in their congregations so they can fly around in nice jets and live in fancy homes? This, too, is an abuse of God's people. We may not be so casual with God's worship to think that it is not of ultimate significance, that God and his worship are somehow just an appendage to our life and not our lives to be given in the service of God and worship. It is greatly offensive to God when we misuse and corrupt his worship. Yes, here we speak of the regulative principle of worship that we may not add to or take away from those things uh, that he has commanded. But more than that, worship flows out into every area of our life. God insists that when we come to him, we draw near in heart, not just with our mouth. And so the test of our worship isn't just how well we're keeping to what we envision the regulative principle to be. The test of our worship is what happens on Monday. In your job, in your home, what you watch, who you're with. The test of our worship is worked out there. Well, we could ask some interesting questions. How do Eli's sons get here? Certainly there is a man-centeredness to this, isn't there? But we find them feeding their own appetites, which are not for God, but for themselves. And God is greatly displeased. And so we find a little bit of hope when Eli rebukes his sons. He calls their deeds evil. It's an interesting statement he makes. God intercedes for the sins between men. 
But what are you going to do if you sin against God? Who's going to be your mediator then? Is it going to be Samuel? There's a little bit of a menacing tone to this. Who is going to intercede for you? Will Jesus Christ intercede for you if you so disrespect him and his worship? And the answer is actually no. Should you so reject and turn from him, do not expect Christ to plead his merits in your place. If what you seek is yourself, and particularly if you abuse the things and the worship and the people of God in such a way, do not expect any hope. Your only hope, and the only hope for any of us ever, is to flee to Christ and abandon all self-interest and self-worship. But, as wonderful as this sounds, Eli is finally doing something in his old age. It's a weak rebuke. It's like the veneer of strength, but there's no backing. The words are plenty strong. But what does he do? He's the high priest. He has the authority to kick them out, maybe cause a civil war in his family. But it appears that he simply speaks to satisfy his conscience. He's trying to do something. I did the best that I could. And this is the man who is judging Israel. This is the man who's leading worship for Israel. Can you see how displeased God is? He is dissatisfied with this pattern of rule and worship. We need a better ruler, a strong ruler, who's really going to rebuke evil, really deal with it. Jesus Christ alone will satisfy our need to really finally fully rebuke and deal with evil in our hearts and in our worship. And so I want you to see... Again, Christianity is not simply talk, and Paul actually uses this language in his letter to the the first letter of the Thessalonians. Christianity is not about talk, it is about power. The Spirit of God at work by the Word of God. But this is just talk. And so the dishonor continues. Here are men who have no respect for their father, no respect for the high priest, no respect for the judge God has appointed. They will not listen. They do not honor their father. They do not, therefore, even honor the God who is their final authority. And the inspired narrator tells us that God had a purpose in that, and his purpose was, and it's a terrifying thing to think of, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Think back to Genesis 3 for a second. The head of the serpent needs to be crushed. There must be a death, all right. And it must not simply be the death of Jesus Christ, but the death of all who oppose his true worship. Christ is going to come, the true worship leader, the true king, and drive his threshing wheel over the wicked and triumph over all false priests and pastors and worshipers, they will fall under the Lord's curse. So much then for the Lord's curse. Very briefly moving on, I want you to notice the Lord's blessing on his true worshipers. We see this in the text. First of all, in his blessing on Hannah. Her life after the birth of Samuel seems to be continually devoted to the service of the Lord. She continues with her husband to go up every year to the Lord's house to offer sacrifice And Eli again blesses her. And once again, do you notice how the Lord works this out? A barren woman who gives away her son. Just think about this. This must have been a little bit like an Abraham moment. Giving away her son. She does not get to have him in her home. You young people don't understand how painful that would be. 
And yet, the Lord supplies her with five more children. And meanwhile, Samuel too is growing in the presence of the Lord. She receives more than she has given, and her son is growing up in the Lord's presence. What a remarkable thing is said. And there is an interleaving of the text, the evil of Eli's sons, the goodness of God and Samuel, the evil of Eli's sons, and again, the goodness of God and Samuel, and that will work its way even into chapter 3, chapters 2 and 3 and following. There's a powerful contrast here. Samuel is the man who is kept for the Lord. He's been prayed for. Every year she brings another robe for him to continue his service. One commentator helpfully says, each time the new robe was a sign of her willingness to fulfill her vow. And so Samuel serves in his youth as a kind of prophet priest and a type of the Lord Jesus. It's extremely significant. It's one of those moments when you find the Old and New Testament so overlaid, you simply cannot escape it. The descriptions of Jesus' birth and youth in Luke chapters 1 and 2 follow the same pattern. And they're written, as it were, in parallel. And so we call Samuel a sort of type of Christ, a pattern of how Jesus will redeem us. Notice, Samuel is born to a woman who is incapable of having children. And Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. Hannah and Mary both pray after the Lord blesses them with a child. The most beautiful songs, exalting God, and Mary's song directly goes back and draws upon Hannah's in Luke chapter 1. Samuel stays in the house of the Lord and ministers to him. And at 12 years of age, think of Jesus. There he is, lost to his parents, and they finally discover him. And he says, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? And then Samuel and Jesus are both. And it's extremely, it's one of those moments you're you're meant to read and say, I've heard this before. Luke 2.52 Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Notice what it says in verse 26 of our text this evening. The young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Did you catch it? It's just transparent, isn't it? Why do we need to see Jesus fulfilling this call placed upon Samuel? Because we need a better priest and a better king. And that king and that priest is only finally realized in the giving of God's Son to mediate for us sinners. And so we read of Samuel becoming a great and godly man, prefiguring Christ, God himself. And we ought often to pray for our children to be such who bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. But I want you to notice here what happens to Eli's boys, as it were. It says in verse 17, Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Now, in Africa, we would speak of big men who run the things, and they're the chiefs, whether you like it or not. They're the important people in the community. And Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are, so to speak, big men. They say it's going to be this way, and it's going to be this way. You want the meat? You just have to give it. There's no questioning. But verse 17 actually uses another word for them. It says they were young men, or we could translate it, Eli's boys are even the little guys. Here they think they're the big guys. They're going to run the show. They're going to use God's worship as a means for self-promotion, advancement, and pleasure. And God says, these are the little guys. Let me show you the little guy who's going to be the big guy. This Samuel who will really know, personally walk with the living God. 
So we have priests, and then we have one priest. An age of moral collapse, and priests who do nothing but corrupt God's worship, while a little boy, not even yet a priest, wears an ephod bearing the names of the sons of Israel on his heart, on his shoulders, to mediate as he one day will fully. What a precious promise in seed form we have in Samuel, the one given to show us the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three conclusions briefly. You can see here, God's worship is holy and pure, and he insists that we have a true prophet, a priest, and a king to to lead us in his pure worship and for his glory that he may bless us. Samuel is blessed. Hannah is blessed. But you can see these big guys exalting themselves, corrupting the worship of God, and God is going to cut them down. We desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ if we are going to be blessed in the worship that God requires. Second, God is able to preserve his great priest. Just as Samuel, in such a wicked environment, grows up to be a man of God, God preserves his own son as pure and perfect one in a wicked and evil generation. Jesus Christ is unaffected by the filth of our God-ignoring, God-hating world. He leads us into true worship. He is the true worshiper, the true priest, the true sacrifice, the Lord of all worship. All will fall under his rule. And it's by faith in his name that we will obtain the blessing of God and not continue under the curse of corrupt worship. And so thirdly, the only place for true blessing and eternal life is by a better king and a better mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is determined that his worship will be pure. God is determined that his worshipers will be pure. And to this end, he gives you himself in his son. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we acknowledge that we are by nature so corrupted and depraved that we cannot even worship you as we even know that we ought. And yet there are still so many ways in our own hearts where we can see depravity at work Even upon coming into worship, we find, O Lord, our hearts not as engaged as we should, our understanding not as full as we should, the preaching not as as clear, as sharp, as convicting, and Christ-illustrating as it ought to be. Lord, there is such a deficit in our worship. We come, O Lord, not in the pride of accomplishment, not in the certainty that our confessions will safeguard us against your wrath, or even that what we do here is adequate for you to be pleased We plead no other help than the mediator, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom you send into the world. We acknowledge, O Lord, that apart from him and his rule, there is no blessing but only curse for us. Have mercy upon us, we pray, and bless us with that purity of worship, that holy desire after you that causes not only for us to seek you, in the purity of heart, in worship, but with all our lives to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service of worship. O Lord, enable your people so to adore you and to glorify your name through Jesus Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.